0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing device. I'm Aaliyah, and if I was on a pirate crew, I would be the ship's cook, because every pirate ship deserves an awful cook.
1: (laughs) I'm Cameron, and if I was on a pirate ship, I would be the ship's carpenter, because I built a chicken coop and it only kind of leaks.
2: I'm Kristen, and if I was on a pirate crew, I would want to be the first mate, because I don't think I could handle being the captain, but I like having the illusion of power.
3: My name is Caitlin, and if I were on a pirate crew, I would be um, the nerdy, really thick glasses person who sits underneath the deck and looks at maps, because that's what I do in real life. So,
4: I'm Holly Root, and I would definitely be the person in charge of teaching the parrot new, inappropriate, or ill-timed sayings.
0: <laughs> I like it. Well, a big welcome to our guest Holly Root, who launched over two dozen New York Times bestsellers before founding Root Literary. Holly, tell us a little bit about your agency.
4: Yeah, so we are a bi-coastal uh, literary agency, and we have five agents now. I think that's right. Um, and I'm based in Los Angeles, and although <laughs> right now we're all based from home. <laughs> so Really matter where we're based from, because the answer is our bedroom. Um, (laughs) And uh, we represent authors of uh, fiction and a little bit of nonfiction for kids all the way up through adults. We've got people working on picture books, middle grade, YA, um, adult fiction, romance, rom-coms. We kind of run the spectrum of ages and readers.
0: Fantastic. So today we really wanted to dig into... Ah, uh, just your your limitless agent expertise, and talk about agent author relationships. So we know you probably get a lot of submissions, and your slush pile is probably a mile high. Um, but to start us off, then, what makes you choose a submission from the slush pile? What catches your eye?
4: So I think for every agent, that sort of what's the magic thing that makes you say yes is half informed by your sensibility of what there's space in the market for, and half. The same as the thing that you get when you're in a bookstore and you pick up a book and you look at the jacket copy and you're like, oh, that's interesting. So it's a little bit of both of those things. There's a bit of art and a bit of science to it. Um, Your your understanding of your contacts certainly informs what you run at. You know, I have at times in my career been very prone to (laughs) seeing something in the slush and, um, you know, having to have it and then getting to the to the point of actually having read it and realizing, like, oh no, that's a great book that I have absolutely no business selling. Um, don't know any editors who are doing that; just not the right person at all. Um, but you know, the idea is that as you go on, you, you perhaps do slightly less of that and a little bit more uh, targeted requesting, so that you're not asking for things that um, might be a bit outside of your your strike zone. Although that said, you know, agents are always sort of evolving and growing too, and so. Um, you never wanna end up so pigeonholed that you couldn't take a chance on something that you loved. And I find that for me, a lot of times that comes from my existing clients. They'll sort of go on flights of fancy and then take me with them. And uh, some of my favorite things to work on have come out of a client saying, I wrote a thing and you probably aren't going to like it. Um, (laughs) To the point that that is now perhaps some of my favorite words uh, to hear because it always means that there's something big and bold coming my way. But when I'm in the slush, I'm sort of looking for um, that great voice that everybody always talks about. Um, and then also that, like I said, that back cover copy f- vibe that you have as a reader in the bookstore too. That's the same feeling that we're going for. That sense of like, oh, yeah, that would, that would be something I would want to spend my time on. That's a, that's a place I want to go on a story level. Um, so it's as much sort of a concept. It's a concept and voice marriage that kind of pulls you through.
2: Well, I was just going to ask, um, as you're reading these manuscripts for the first time, are you automatically thinking of which editors you'd like to pitch it to um, from the start?
4: When things go well, you are absolutely thinking about the editors that you want to pitch it to. Um, that's usually one of my earliest signs that something is going to be a fit for me is when I'm reading it and I can't stop thinking about like exactly who it's going to go to. That's usually a really great indicator that it's right on the mark for um, you know my contacts and my sense of where the market is and all of those things. And a book that I don't have that spark, too. honestly, the answer might be, I haven't had the right conversations with those editors. Like we see this happen all the time that there'll be something that we saw in the slush if we were like, "Oh, it's good, and I just don't quite have that sense of exactly how I would position it that which I think people sometimes think is like a line <laughs> that we use in like rejections, but is really super actually the truth sometimes. And it will sometimes honestly just be, and then you'll see who it's sold to and you'll be like,
3: oh, of course. So you mentioned that you have, um, you, you tend to take your, um, clients work when they write you something, then when they write something, they're like, I'm sure you're not going to like this. And then that's where you get your, um, your books that tend to be slightly off of where the market is, I guess. Is that
4: what you mean? Or what you said? Yeah, it could be that, or it could be, um. It could be a new category, something that I haven't necessarily worked in as much before or that I've wanted to get into but haven't found the right project, and then the right project comes from somebody you've already sort of been working with. That happens a lot. Um, you know, I know some of my colleagues who always only did children's or always only did adult, and then one of their authors did something in the opposite category, and that was sort of their entree into the world. I think that happens a lot for a lot of agents, and that's certainly been the case for me.
3: So um, I know a question that a lot of people ask, at least on the slush pile side of things, is how different of a project do agents want to see in their inbox? Because people are always talking about, I want to see something new and fresh and not just something that's redone, but it also needs to fit into the market. So what kind of a balance would you be looking at there?
4: That's a really good question. It's, it is one of those know-it-when-you-see-it things. Um, and sometimes you'll see projects that are You know, taking big swings and they're not quite there yet on an execution level, but you love the boldness of what the person is going for. And those are usually things where early in my career, I might've maybe gone for that and said like, okay, let's sign this one up and maybe it's not the one we sell, but here we go. Um, And different people's lists are at different stages. It might also something that to me feels like, okay, we're not quite there yet, might to someone else be perfect and ready to go. And then off they go. And that vision was right. Um, So that, that is something where opinions can vary widely. And I think also people's um, most recent submissions experiences really inform that too. And I think that's something that um, authors probably aren't thinking about as part of the feedback loop. Like, I, I think there's this tendency to think of like an agent opinion as like, a definitive value judgment, whereas in fact, you are just getting someone's sort of most recent experiences on the market, like filtering through what they're responding to. So I've passed on things before because I've tried to sell something that was kind of similar and found that there were a lot fewer editors who were into thing XYZ than I expected. And so it was a harder road than I thought it would be. Um, And so that's an example of a situation where, you know something that was just like something else I've tried <clears throat> might actually have a much harder road forward than something that was a little bit more left fieldy um and I do think that the uh, the fatigue of being in the slush is real and so that can sometimes really help if you have something you know that is a big swing um because things can start to sort of feel the same and especially people trying to sort of make their projects fit these models, or they've been online and, you know, read a ton of query letters. And so now things have been sort of like committed to a point where you've lost a little bit of the voice that can happen sometimes too. Um, So I think that like a big, bold, weird book is only weird if you don't know how to sell it if you read it and you're like yeah second person told from the pov of a spaceship sure i know exactly what that is like it's only weird if it's not your weird um so i think that in most cases something it's much it's much more likely that i would let something go that was competently executed but that felt you know like oversaturated or um just Hard to sort of see how you could get someone to make that their one discretionary purchase of the month when they're like pushing their cart through Target. Um, I'd be much more likely to sort of let that go and more curious about maybe something that felt more unusual, more likely to sort of pioneer a new category, something like that. But again, that's also where I am in my list. And um, there are a lot of lanes where I kind of have people doing a thing, and I'm much less likely to sort of want to compete with my own list in that way so different agents
1: different lists for sure so changing the subject just a little bit you've obviously been in the industry for a hot minute you've got your own you you, you have your own your own agency um are there any like hallmarks that you would point out to authors who are looking for like not just an agent but like a good agent like what what makes agents stand out as being particularly good at their job
4: Oh man, that is such a, I wish there was like a much easier way of answering that because that is one of those things that like keeps me up at night. Um, wow. Cause there is no like, there's no like board, right? Like we're not uh-huh. like licensed, there's no test. Um, which sometimes I'm like, man, that's a real shame. Um, and there are <laughs> then on top of that, like even just within legitimate, Agents who are good at their jobs and sell a lot of books, there are a vast array of stylistic differences, none of which are necessarily bad or good, but which might be really, really bad or good for you as an individual creator. Um, So it is one of those things that is like really hard to give a good answer to. I mean, I think at the base, you deserve an agent who does meaningful numbers of deals of the sort that you want. Um, so if you want to be published by a big five publisher, it is not unreasonable to expect that your agent either has done deals with the kinds of publishers you want to be published by, or if they're brand new, that they have bosses who have, and that those bosses are involved and invested in teaching them in like a really hands-on way. And that is not an inappropriate question to ask if you're talking to a young agent. Right. Like no, nobody who's being mentored well should be... Like defensive or weird about that, <laughs> like I remember early on in my um in my career, my boss said to me, Stop apologizing for being new. It's your superpower, and that changed everything about how I approached the signing call that instead of sort of being like, Well, I mean, you know so I've only been here for a year, I came at it from a place of like I have been here." one year, here's what I have done. And here's what I want to do. And here's all the ways that I'm prepared to like make this book happen for you. And it's a funny thing to think about, but like agents also have to agent themselves. And when they're presenting themselves to you, that's an opportunity to see how they talk about a product themselves, a service themselves. It's a way to see how they sort of approach pitching, how they approach, um, how they self conceptualize Um, And I think that in many cases, you're, you know, if you've done your due diligence and you know that they are doing the kinds of deals that you want to be doing, um, at that point, it really is about sort of fit things. And those are sort of, um, it's style, it's what kinds of services their agency provides, it's have they thought through the sort of like long-term ramifications, because if they sell your book, you're tied to them for the life of copyright, which is a long time, (laughs) Like, are they capable of doing that? Um, Do they, have they thought about estates? Like, do they know what those are? Um, All of those things are reasonable things to ask. Um, And again, it's also someone, the thing I say to people all the time is you have to have somebody on the other end of the phone that you're happy to hear from when it's good news and that you're happy to hear from when it's bad news. And I can't control the kinds of news that I have to give you, but I can control the care with which I deliver that news. Um, And that can be, that can be like a hard thing to get a right match on. Um, Cause you, some people sort of think they want one thing and then they find out midway through that that's not actually how they work best. Um, So I always tell people like I'm a, you have to be a chameleon to a certain extent. I have clients who are like, please tell me nothing about my submission. (laughs) Like literally, I don't even want to know the editors. And I'm like, okay, I can work with that. That is not necessarily how like I would have have done it, but okay. Yeah. Like that's what you need. I got you. And then I have other clients who are like, I would like everything, you know, including possibly their time and place of birth so I can run a star (laughs) chart on them. And I'm like, I will do my best. I can't tell you the hospital name, but I will find out if they're a Gemini. Um, So, you know, to a certain extent, agents should be able to be a little bit flexible around helping people get through what can be a really stressful process. But you know, general things like I'm pretty big on boundaries. I'm not someone who's like texting with my clients all the time, um or really, like ever. <laughs> I like I try to keep some containers around um around the ways in which we communicate. And so I also try to be pretty clear about that upfront, too, just that there are like certain things. And for me, it's just a matter of like, I will absolutely lose track of that. I have systems and humans who are like supposed to keep me on task <laughs> if we go through normal channels and like, I mean, I, every now and again, I tweet like a screenshot of the bottom of my phone, just to like make people lose their minds. I don't like, I leave people on read all the time. I'm like not (laughs) a good texter. So like, I just, I try to be clear with people about sort of, you know, the ways in which I legitimately do work best. And then the things where I can be really super flexible to give them what they need. Um, And, you know, we talk, I I think we've spent a lot of time and energy at our agency working on things to sort of... um, help our authors be as informed as possible and to really give them as much information as we can, both individually, like one-on-one with our clients, but then also we like built out a client portal that's basically a sort of encyclopedia or repository of like publishing information. So that if you're up at two in the morning and you're like... I couldn't stop myself. I read over my marketing plan again. I cannot remember what this thing means. There is a place where you can literally go and be like, what does, you know, ALA again, what? Return. And then like find out what it is. Um, So we've like, that is a real priority for us as agents. And I think that also sort of you, part of the process of matching with an agent is finding someone whose stuff they care about is the stuff you care about. Mm -hmm. And not every agent is going to be right for every author, and not every author is going to be right for every agent. So part of that process is just about sort of figuring out who's your kind of partner.
2: Sorry. Well, I was just going to say, you mentioned a number of reasonable questions that an author could ask an agent. Are there questions that you feel like an author definitely should ask an agent when offered representation?
4: Yeah. I mean, I think it, I think it does come down to sort of like what the author's... um Like, it's a little different project to project in some ways. But I think if there are things that you – it's an opportunity to see how your agent explains things, too. So I think asking some questions – you know, asking questions about, like, how do you see the book? What kinds of editorial changes would you see? Like, all of that stuff is great. Um, And then I think also, you know, questions about how do you handle foreign? What do you do with film? Um, What do you – you know – how do you handle it if the book doesn't sell? Those kinds of questions um, are all really good ones, both for the information that they give you and then also, again, as an opportunity to hear how that agent presents information. Um, and you can, I, I think, you can sort of be listening for the answer behind the answer in some ways, too, because you'll get a vibe for how that person delivers news gives you you know positions things for you are they you know are they more of a pessimist are they more of an optimist are they pretty sunshiny are they a little bit more intimidating like kind of just those those vibe things can all also come out in that question process
3: i wanted to know so do you when you from that very first phone call you have with an author are you already thinking about how you can build up their career like long term are you thinking about this on a project level
4: I very rarely offer representation when I'm not like pretty clear in my brain what five years from now ideally looks like. And that sounds banana pants. I mean, a lot of things can happen between like that phone call and actual five years. Um, But it has happened not infrequently that like my vision of five years is not far from where we landed. Um, It. At this point, too, in my career, because I am further in and I also have the responsibility of the agency, not just my own list, but like the team, um, for me to jump in, I have to have a pretty strong sense that like it really should be me. Um, And I don't mean that like an egomaniac, like just monster. Um, I mean that like there's something here that I see and like, oh, it's going to just Eat my soul up if I am not the one, like, along for the ride. Um, And that usually my colleague describes like my approach to publishing as like an otter that you've given a puzzle ball to at the zoo with like a fish inside. And you're like, fish, fish, how do I get the fish? Like turning the ball over and over in your head, like trying to get the fish. Like yesterday it was this, but today it's not. Huh, that's interesting. Um, and it's true, like the parts of the the gig that are really exciting and fun for me now are sort of the like, how do we get from here to there? And so usually when I do get in. The mix for something. It's because I'm like, oh yeah. Okay. We can have this could be this is gonna be there's a really good fish in this ball. Um and there are plenty of other like amazing books that I don't get in the mix on for a variety of reasons, often related to timing or my own shenanigans. But those are that that vibe is usually what I'm holding out for, and that often does have to do with like long term career vision things that I'm like, mm-hmm, yes, I see it. I there is a thing that I am seeing.
0: All right, well, that's about our time for the discussion portion of the podcast. Um, anyone have final thoughts before we move on? Okay, fantastic. Then a quick review of how we critique. We try to be non-prescriptive, but if you'd like to check out the text for the submission and see all of our notes on it, check on our website, litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. If you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines there. So, summary of this week's submission. Alicia comes in late to work at her grandmother's bakery, only to have her ex-boyfriend show up to buy the last dulce de leche cake the one thing she wants to eat on the anniversary of her mother's disappearance. So, a lot of drama happening in this already. What are some things we liked?
4: So I thought that the uh, there's some really great imagery in this one, just like little moments of like, oh, yes, I know exactly what that is. Um, and... The the sort of moment of tension as she sort of sneaks in and she the, the turn when she thinks that she's like being given the cold shoulder and then it turns out it's just AirPod related <laughs> like distraction <laughs> um, is like such a great moment uh, because it's such a nice little tension build. Um, and I felt like it also set up this idea that, um, which I think is really common, that the protagonist has this expectation that the grandmother's like, hard and fast, um, about how she'll respond to things when actually there might be like a little bit more grace to be had there than she's necessarily anticipating. Um, and I thought that was a really nice little just layer to put on there that she didn't, e- there were other things going on and it wasn't just like a one note take out of the grandma. Um, and just finding little ways to put that in, I thought was really clever.
0: Just gonna say, I appreciate that we got the main character's name in the first paragraph. That's probably one of my pet peeves, not knowing first person point of view character's names. So I really appreciate that.
4: Oh, funny. I never remember anyone's name, so I never clock
2: that. <laughs> 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 Ever. <laughs> like, That's really funny. I, I think there are some really great lines in here. Um, Even on the first page, we've got... Uh, in that first paragraph, I can just imagine her, her abuela infusing my name with disappointment as if Alessia was a curse and not a name at all. I thought that was really great. Um, And it kind of goes along. I think the word infusing made me think of baking and cooking. So I thought it was a nice little nod to the fact that they work in a bakery and it was a good way to keep voice. Mm hmm.
3: I also really liked all of the hints about her trouble with the police and the VR stuff because I feel like it's making a lot of interesting promises about what the rest of the story is going to be about.
1: Um, So as someone who's worked in a few different food service places with cash registers and as someone who has a social anxiety disorder, I will say that the depiction here was almost uncomfortably accurate. (laughs) I could definitely feel um, her discomfort coming off of the page. So, you know, props.
4: Oh yeah, that line about that line about like the people. Um, yeah. is such such a great line.
2: Um, and I I like all of our hints that we're in an Alice in Wonderland retelling, and um, I think there's a nice moment when the abuela begins telling a story, where the, her question is, "Did you know that in a room in a distant land, there's a door that leads to everywhere and nowhere?" Which is such a compelling question to me, and it made me really interested in the rest of the story. Um, I, I think we'll have a note on that maybe and things that might need a second look, but I did like the promise set up there. I agree, I love that too.
0: If we're good to move on to some things that might need a second look, um, I actually did have a note on the story. I found the start of it so intriguing. And so then I think I was a little disappointed when the rest of the story is just summed up in, you know, Abuela, finish the story. Um, because the first part of the story was given to us, I kind of tagged it in my reader brain as, oh, that's going to be important. It's going to be a theme for the rest of the story. But then when we didn't actually hear the rest of the story, I wondered, I guess why why it had an important place there.
1: I kind of had a similar feeling. I mean, on the one hand, I was happy that, you know, it didn't take up another page or so, but I think a little bit more than like if we gotten a sense of how the story ends or something that might have been more of a hook to bring us forward.
4: I wondered about I whether Uh, it might've been effective to lay in when she's sort of like going through that at the very beginning, the like lateness, the, um, if she could lay in the idea of she's just like pushing through to the end of this day when there's like the cake waiting for her at the end of it so that when he shows up, um, looking for that specific cake, there's a little bit of sort of um, mechanical explaining that has to happen of like, and this is why that cake is important and here's who he is. And there's just like a lot of ground being covered in terms of introductions. And that is always a hardship in the beginning of a book. But I wondered if you might be able to shortcut some of it by layering it in as something she wants so that when he walks through the door, she's automatically at odds with this customer before we even know like how at odds she is with this customer. Uh, So that was something that stuck out for me.
3: Yeah about that cake um I really liked the last night line where we're talking about this being the anniversary of her mother's disappearance but it it came as more of a surprise than like a tension building type of thing to me because it seems kind of like if that's the reason she's late and that's the reason she's upset that day that it would have it would have come up before the very last line. I think there's one reference to it somewhere in the middle, but it doesn't seem like it's a big deal other than that she's upset that her mother disappeared. But the fact that it's that day, like I just was surprised it hadn't come up before. And the cake, like you said, would be a really great way to point to that.
2: That actually, I think, um, lines up with one of the things that tripped me up a little bit about this. I think there's a ton of really compelling hinting in here. But I I feel like as a reader, it would have been easier to feel emotionally invested if some of it wasn't hinting and we had some questions answered up front, um, just so there's some way for us to be emotionally grounded in what's going on with her ex and her grandmother and the cake, uh, because Alessia is trying to avoid feeling a lot of feelings. and And so there's kind of this groundlessness because she's feeling it, but also trying to push it away at the same time. And it left me as a reader feeling a little unbalanced.
4: Yeah, no, no, I think that's, um, I, I would agree. I think there's the opportunity here is in sort of, um, clarifying a little bit of her, um, emotional whirlwind, which is always a and a tough thing to sort of pull off in just a couple of pages when you're trying to ground people um, in a new character that they haven't met before. Because yeah, there is this sort of. There's a lot of sense of things that happened before and how they're going to come into play here. Um, but I think the more that you ground into the specificity of this moment, um, that I think is the is the best sort of like anchor to get your readers through those moments. And anytime there's an option to make it sort of more specific. Um, less sort of uh less hinty, as you said, then I think that's always the road to take. But you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of skill on display in these pages already. So I think the the writer will be up to the task.
0: That's about our time for today. Does anybody have any final notes?
3: I had one more thing I wanted to say, if that's okay, guys. Um I did kind of feel like um it might just be me being really picky because I just taught a class about this. But um it feels very external. Um, and part of that, I think, is a sentence structure thing. There are a lot of I sentences. It starts with I. But, um, and then there's also quite a bit of telling rather than showing things. Um, there are so many cool images in this and cool relationships um, that I I was a little bit caught between... I wasn't sure if we were getting narration after the fact, even though I think it's in first person present, or if we're, like, outside of her, because it feels like the narration is quite external. Instead of getting emotions and thoughts and feelings as they occur to her, we kind of get them after the fact. Like, for example, when she sees her ex, um, I was wondering, like, as soon as I saw him, I'm like, what changed? Why now? Why is he in here now? And she doesn't have those reactions, and I was wondering why. But then she does ask him later, like, why are you here now? And so... I mean, that's, that's something that you as a writer can decide whether or not you want to do. But one of the benefits of using first person present is that we get to experience things at the same time as the character does. And it can be a really compelling, like deep POV thing that you can have going on there where, where uh, a reader can be really deep inside someone's head and be experiencing those emotions and reactions right at the same time the character does. So it might be something to look at.
0: That's our time for today. A thank you to this author for submitting. We enjoyed reading your work. A big thank you to Holly Root for coming on today. You can learn more about her agency at rootliterary.com. Our next guest will be Darcy Little Badger, an earth scientist, writer, and fan of the weird, beautiful, and haunted. Her debut novel, Lazzo, will be out August 25th. If you'd like a first chapter critique from Darcy, get us your work by July 30th. Thank you to our intern, Lindsay Owens and Alan Singster, who's our sound designer. If you want to ask us questions, tell us we're awesome, or whine about how your writing is going, you can find us on social media or email us at litservicepodcast at gmail.com. Please remember to like, share, and review the podcast to help us grow. For Lit Service, thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks.